Uh, and while we're here, our text today is going to be in Isaiah 9, if you have your own Bibles. And if you're going to use our pew Bibles, which are underneath your chairs, uh, you'll find that passage on page 573. Man, the kids are quiet today. The first thing I want to do is actually uh, kind of offer an apology. You see, I was going to shave for everyone here. Uh, and, and unfortunately, you have to look at my patchy beard, my, my failed attempt at growing one, uh, because my lovely fiance happens to like uh, this facial hair. So I kept it for her, and unfortunately, uh, for the next few minutes, you're going to have to look at it. But that's okay. You know, if you were ever to study history, just even for a brief period of time, you would soon start to realize that history seems to just be this series of oppressive empires. And they're always, there's always someone who has world domination on their mind. One of these nations, one of these oppressors was the Assyrian Empire. The height of their reign was around 70, 750 B.C., and they had a particular way of being ruthless in the way they oppressed people. You see, what they would do is after they would conquer a nation, they would take some of the families, maybe even divide those families up, and they would move them to other parts of their kingdom, of their empire, and they would continue to do that until they're spreading out the peoples of that city all over the world. And then what they would do is they would take other defeated people and move them into that city that they just conquered. Their goal in doing this was that they wanted to, to destroy the identity of the people in that area. They wanted to systematically wipe out language and culture and religion and the history that people shared together that would unite them so that they could rebuild their society. This particular way of being oppressive was to destroy the entire people. And in the year 722 BC, this is exactly what happens to the northern kingdom of Israel. As they are abolished, they are wiped out, and they, are, they, they never recover from it. They're systematically destroyed. And while the embers in the north are still cooling, the Assyrian army begins to march south. And down south is the southern kingdom of Judah, the city of Jerusalem, the city of God. And this empire, this army is coming, and there's this, this impending doom and oppression and exile, and there's just fear and quaking and trembling in the city. And it's in the face of this oncoming doom, in the face of this oncoming uh, exile and elimination of their identity, that's when God sends the prophet Isaiah this vision. And this vision is one of deliverance and freedom from oppression. But it's not a vision of the Assyrians. No, it takes place further into the future. It's not a vision of any superpower for that matter. The deliverance comes from an oppression that runs far deeper than any human being can reach. Any human-made empire can reach. The deliverance comes from an oppression that has plagued humanity since the beginning of time. This deliverance 
is a promise of freedom from the oppression of sin. This oppression that sin holds over every single human soul is what destroys our relationship with God and with others. It's because of sin that we see and experience so much pain and suffering in our own individual lives. And we see it in the world. We see it everywhere. All of this, this, this disgustingness and this evil that's spread throughout the world, it's a product of sin. And the capstone of it is that death entered the world because of sin. Every living creature suffers death. It reminds us of the weight that sin holds over the entire creation. But this darkness that looms over us, it's not going to have the final say. That's what the vision teaches here. That's what the gospel teaches. Because the light of God's saving grace is coming to overcome that darkness. You know, Isaiah saw this vision. He would never see it come to life. But 700 years later, it would come in the reality of Jesus Christ being born into this world. The main point that I want us to learn today is that we are a people in desperate need of rescue from oppression. Let us read Isaiah 9, starting in verse 2, and we'll go to verse 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come to your word as we read the words that you have passed down to us through the prophet Isaiah and the words that you have passed down to us through your wonderful history that you've carved out for yourself. God, I pray that these words would be, become real to us, that our ears would be open, our eyes would be open, our minds would be open, and our hearts would be open to be able to see and hear and know and feel that your awesome presence and your mighty work has been done was done, is being done, and will be done, God, that you accomplish this mighty goal of rescue and redemption and salvation, that you have done it in your son, Jesus Christ, that you have rescued us from the oppression of sin, and that you continue to do that work in this world until this day. And we pray, God, that these realities would rest on our souls here today and as we go forward into the year 2014. In your son's heavenly name we pray. Amen. So as the vision begins, we start to see this distinction between darkness and light. 
I mean, we, we just read verse 2 here. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. What we find throughout the biblical narrative is that darkness and light are used to represent a, a couple of different things. But one of the main things that they represent uh, for darkness is evil, chaos, calamity, or the most important part is that which is absent from God's good presence. In light, we end up seeing it as his awesome and powerful in the very personal presence of God. We also see it in the way that God displays his grace to mankind, his mercy and his love to mankind. One of the places that we see darkness and light is right at the very beginning of, uh, of Scripture. We see it in the creation account. And we read in Genesis 1-2 that darkness was over the face of the deep. Now, it's not that God wasn't present, okay, because we saw that the Spirit is hovering over the waters. We know that God is there. We know that there's some sort of landmass or water. It's, it, it, we still don't understand the fullness of it, but we know that something's there. It's not that God is not present, but God has not entered into creation yet. He has not started to craft and lovingly create the conditions from which he would bring about life. And then the very first thing that comes when God speaks is he says, let there be light. And when the light is formed, God begins to interact with the creation. He begins to lovingly watch over and sculpt everything that is made, including human life. But when we come to this passage, the original condition of the people isn't living in a land of light. The original condition is a people living in a land of deep darkness. He doesn't just say darkness. He ends up emphasizing deep darkness. In other words, they're living in a land that is separated from the very good and loving presence of God. They are instead living in a land that is full of, and they are dwelling in this chaotic evilness. But in the middle of this despairing picture, we're told that light shines. And when it shines into these people's lives, we turn to verse 3 and look at the amazing, amazing response that they have to it. Listen to this. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. That's a lot of joy coming from this light. So as these people who are dwelling in darkness are coming into God's light, their response is unreserved, magnificent, exuberant joy. You know, I was uh, very fortunate to go to game two of the American League Championship Series this last year. And if anyone here is a, is a Red Sox fan, they, they probably watched the game and they know what I'm talking about. But there was this kind of despair and this hush that was over the stadium because the Red Sox, they were getting their butts kicked, to be honest. All right? They were just getting mowed down. They weren't even making contact with the ball. They weren't even hitting fouls. All right? They were just getting struck out left and right. But in the eighth inning, down 4 nothing, with the bases loaded and two outs, up comes David Ortiz. And he takes a swing on the first pitch and just launches the ball. It was kind of surprising 
But as that ball is soaring over the wall, right over the glove of Torrey Hunter, this just exultation comes out of the stadium. This crowd is just like triumphantly rejoicing. There's hugging, there's high fives. It's just this incredible amount of joy. Now that's nothing compared to the joy that God's presence brings. And yet it was one of the most joyful places that I had been in. Ladies and gentlemen, I think we all know what we're talking about here when we experience that kind of communal, that wonderful joy and that happiness. But that, when it's of something, you know, the nature of a Red Sox game, a Super Bowl, is nothing compared to the joy that God's presence brings. But as we move further into this vision, we start to see why the people are dwelling in darkness and thus why they are rejoicing so much. Let's read verses four and five together. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the, and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burnt as fuel for the fire. So these people are living in this darkness because they're living under an oppression. Notice this, this language of the, the yoke of the burden, the staff of his oppressor, the rod. I, I mean, this is language of people in slavery. So the reason there's so much joy and celebration is because this slavery, this oppression is being broken. It's absolutely vanquished. It's not coming again. That's the... the, 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 the the, um, the robes and stuff like that uh, that are dipped in blood being burned, that's showing that it's never coming again. This oppression is completely and totally gone. But as mentioned before, this oppression isn't an army. It's not a nation. It's not an empire. This oppression is sin. And it's every single human soul that is oppressed. And the saddest part is, is that all of our souls are oppressed by sin because we willingly enter into it. We willingly disobey God. Let's read Romans 3.23. It's a very short and simple and yet profound statement. All men have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So sin is a falling short of the glory of God. Sin occurs when we do not rightly worship God. Sin occurs when we do not rightly see God as the creator of the universe, the creator of our lives, the sustainer of our lives. You know, in the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned, it said that they desired to have knowledge of good and evil. Why? So that they can be like God. We act independently of God's direction. We defy his holy law. We try to set up codes of morality for ourselves. We define what's right and wrong. We define what our lives are going to be. We take absolute control. We do not give it to God. We do not give the worship and the honor and the glory to God. It's a profound truth I don't think anyone can disagree with. You know, if we really did give him the worship, honor, and glory, I want to try to paint a picture of what it might look like, but I think it even falls short of what it really is. And that's when we woke up in the morning, when when we get up, we'd start singing his praises. When we would go to work, we would be singing his praises. When we come home, we'd be singing his praises. 
When we go to sleep, we would sleep talk and sing his praises. That would be our lives. We would just be singing God's praise every single day. So, okay, we don't, we don't worship and honor God rightly, but, but how does that oppress us? How does that oppress our souls? That's the question. I'm telling you right now that we try to be independent. We try to go things our own way. Doesn't that sound like freedom? How, does, how is that oppression? I think it's laid out beautifully in Jeremiah 2.13 when God talking about the sins of the, uh, of the people of Jerusalem. He says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So the first way that we see that sin oppresses us is that it causes us to forsake God. You see, God has made us as creatures of desire. We know that. We all desire things. We all desire joy. We all desire peace. We all desire contentment and happiness. We want to be at peace with our souls. And what God's telling us here is that it is only in his presence that we can fulfill and satisfy those desires. That's why he calls himself the fountain of living waters. It's only when we drink from his presence that we can be satisfied. So how do we fulfill those desires by being with God? It's, it's actually a, a simpler answer than we might realize. It's through a relationship with him. God is a relational being. And just like our joy is usually maximized when we're with family and friends and close loved ones, it doesn't matter what we're doing with them. It matters that we're with them. So we have joy in their presence. That is the type of way that we are supposed to have our joy in God. But he's supposed to be ultimate. We're supposed to have our ultimate joy with God, in relationship with God, him as our father. That's why there's language is, is being used throughout scripture. He calls himself the husband of his people. He calls himself the father of his people because he's a relational being. So how is it that sin then corrupts that in us? Well, it causes us to not see God for who he really is. We see him as an oppressive ruler. We see him as a detached God, someone who created and then left, or we don't even see him at all. We don't believe in him. And so it's this corruption, this corrupted view of God and we don't see him rightly as a personal being, that causes us to forsake him. And so what we're left with, if he's the source of our satisfaction, is a huge gaping hole in our hearts. There is this left, uh, there's longing left, this deep urge to be satisfied. And that leads us to our second way that sin oppresses us. It oppresses us by causing us to drink from broken cisterns. So now that there's that vast emptiness in us, now that we don't draw from the living water, we're going to go ahead and try to find other sources of water to satisfy our longings. But the problem is that these are temporary solutions to an eternal longing. We're going to try to attain as much wealth and power and intellect and sex and whatever other type of gratification that we can think of. You insert it. We're going to try to attain it. 
And we know, we know that they don't satisfy. Because as soon as you have some of this wealth, as soon as you have that, that, that car that you wanted or that house that you wanted or that perfect girlfriend or boyfriend that you wanted, you know what happens? In a couple weeks, you're bored with it or it's not enough. You need something else. You need something better. You need something more. You know, we live in the most prosperous, safe, comfortable, and leisurely nation in the history of mankind. According to what the world tells us, we should all be so happy in our streets because we have these amazing little gadgets and gizmos that can put everything at our fingertips. And yet, we lapse as a nation and as people into cycles of addiction. We lapse into deep depression People are turning to drugs and alcohol, and suicide rates are on a rise, especially amongst young people who have the most technologically advanced toys. And it's because we know and we see that that deep longing in our heart cannot and will not and never, ever will be satisfied with those toys. There's a wonderful book in the Bible often misunderstood. It's uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. And, and it's right in the beginning. It might even be the first verse uh, where it says, vanity, vanities of vanities, all is vanity. And he goes on to list, uh, this is the, he's called the preacher or the son of David. He's a high up authority, maybe even a king. And he goes on to list about all the pleasures that he pursued and how none of them gave him satisfaction. So the Bible, listen, God is not letting us figure this out on, it, on our own, okay? We do, we do figure it out on our own, but he's telling us that this is an eternal reality, an eternal truth. There's also a third way that sin oppresses us. It causes broken relationships with others. You see, God did not create us in a vacuum. He created us as humans that interact with other human beings. And so I ask a very simple question what would you expect a world to look like where every human being, being under the oppression of sin, is looking to satisfy their own desires with these broken vessels? You see, if we were living in right relationship with God, well, he has an eternal source of joy. There's going to be no lack of that living water. We can all draw from him. But we don't. And so we compete over these muddied, broken cisterns. Paul tells us what this world might look like. He says in Galatians 5, 19 through 21, that the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. He ran out of ink. He couldn't keep going. And we don't have time to go over all of these here. But there's something we should notice. Most of these on the list, they have to do with our interaction with other people. Just consider for a moment you want to fulfill the longing of your heart 
with money, with power, whatever it might be, and another person has more of it or has some of it and you want to get it from them, well, you're going to respond in a couple different ways. Either you're going to try to do whatever you can to take it from them or you're going to, at the very least, be jealous of that person or hate them in your heart. You can't love them because they have what you want. Or you're going to turn and just wallow in despair. Maybe you're going to turn to try to find something else to fulfill you, but guess what? Someone else is going to have that too. So do we see how this sin causes us to break the relationships? Is there any wonder that we live in a world where there's so much war and there's so much pain and there's so much murder and there's so much rape and sex trafficking and all of these evils that are existing? Is there any wonder that this world exists? But sin is not just the evils that we see expressed in the world. Jesus cut off that mindset in the book of Matthew. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So we have to ask ourselves, I think this is a good reflective question, if our innermost desires of our heart were on display for the world to see, how are we going to react? I'll let you answer that for yourselves. But I know for myself, I have had enough lust and anger and envy and hatred that I would run and hide so that I can never be found by the world again. That's how you see how much sin has oppression in your heart. Search and oh, you will find it. So, summarize the oppression of sin. Sin oppresses us by distorting our relationship with God and others because it forces us to seek satisfaction for our desires outside of the personal presence of God. And the question then we ask ourselves is how can this be fixed? How can this be cured? If sin is causing us to be blind to God's goodness, to be blind to the fact that he's the eternal wellspring of joy, and sin is it's being connoted as this deep darkness, then the answer, of course, is light. Notice the beginning of the vision. The people are dwelling in deep, deep darkness, meaning there's nothing they can do about it. They don't even realize that they're being oppressed. They're dwelling and walking in this darkness. This is the way that sin has control, excuse me, over our hearts. It has such a grip on us that we don't even recognize it's there. Until the light of God shines into that darkness. This brings us to our next point. That the rescue from this oppression comes from a child. You know, on Wednesday, we celebrated the birth of an infant that was born over 2,000 years ago. Not only that, but he was born into a poor family in a manger in a backwater community in town in a province of the Roman Empire. He wasn't a king. He wasn't a famous actor. He wasn't a celebrity by any measure of the world's standards. 
But the reason that we celebrate his birth is because of what we read here in verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. You see, this child is no ordinary man. He's the eternal Son of God who came to be the light in this world that would vanquish that darkness, that would break the bonds of sin, that have such a grip over our soul that we can't do anything about, that, we, that, that makes us and forces us to continue to live in absolute, uh, uh, we just live against God. We don't follow him. This child came to break that. Listen to, what, listen to what John writes in the beginning of his gospel. It says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He begins his gospel in front of that by saying that Jesus Christ is the word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. There was nothing created that was not created through the Word. The Gospel of John is setting up this picture for us right in the beginning that this son, this child coming in is the eternally begotten Son of God the Father. This is why when Isaiah receives the vision, listen to the names that are given to the child. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. These names are showing his infinite worth and his infinite holiness. They're displaying that this is not just your normal run-of-the-mill guy. This is someone who is more special than has ever been born in the earth. And if Isaiah wasn't enough to talk about his infinite worth and holiness. And John, a first-hand witness, wasn't enough. We can come to the words of Christ himself. In John 8, 12, Jesus says of himself that he is the light of the world and that whoever follows him will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. So we see not only is the prophet claiming this child, is God come into the world? Not only is the firsthand witness claiming it, and believe me, there's more than just the two of them, but we see him claiming it for himself. Christ is a light that came to shine in the darkness. He came to open our eyes that were formerly blind to the oppression of sin so that we can see the reality of our condition, knowing that we are now desperately in need of God's presence to satisfy those longings of our hearts. You know, he lived his life as the light by conquering people's illnesses. He brought them back to life on the brink of death. He brought someone back from death into life. He also did it by claiming authority over 
God's word. We saw that in the Matthew text. He said, you have read or you have heard, but I tell you. He's claiming authority now over the Holy Scriptures. And he also displayed himself as the light in the way that he depended fully on the Holy Spirit in the way that he uh, gave absolute reverence and obedience and honor to the Father. And then the light of the world. God come into the world. He marched up the hill of Calvary. And there he took the weight of that sin upon his shoulders. And he suffered that deep oppression of darkness that was meant for us that we were in. You see, he had always enjoyed that perfect love of God. God the Father and God the Son were always drawing off the deep wellsprings of love. But in that moment, in that moment, that was lost. And he took on the fullness of God's judgment and wrath against sin. He took on the justice that we deserved. He did it in our place. And once again, because that sin was laid heavily on him, on that cross, he died. Remember that death is the capstone of sin. That's what proves and shows that we are all under sin. So as he dies, we know that he had the fullness of sin on him. But it doesn't end there. That darkness could not contain him forever. That sin could not bind him as it bound us. No, because on the third day, he rose from the dead and he burst forth from the tomb. And when he was doing that, he was breaking that yoke that sin's burden lays on our souls once and for all. Paul writes, for our sake, he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, Jesus Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Christ suffered on the cross so that he could enter into this deep darkness. He could become the light in that darkness. And that light is what breaks the bonds of oppression on us. The bonds that we cannot break ourselves. The bonds that we dwelt in and lived in. That we willingly chose to have strapped to our, to our wrists and our ankles. It is Christ who breaks us from that. It is Christ who frees us from that. He redeemed us so we can now turn to God. We can now have eyes that see because the darkness is lifted and we can see God as that wellspring, that living water. And those broken cisterns, we still see them. We know they're there. And every once in a while, because we still live on this earth, we turn to them, but they are disgusting in our mouth. We know of the dirt and the soil that's in them. We know that there's no such thing as lasting water in them. The rescue mission that Christ set out to accomplish it's done on the cross. That's why he yells out, it is finished. The darkness is vanquished and the glory of God's light shines brilliantly for all of mankind to see. Everyone in this room, everyone out there in the streets of Medford, everyone in the United States of America, everyone across the world, this light is for 
all of them to see if they put their faith in Christ's work on the cross. We know we can't do it ourselves. We saw how doing it ourselves gets us. It puts us in bondage. We put our faith in the light. We turn to the light. We follow the light. And it's there where we get out of the darkness. But you know, the vision doesn't end here. See, God's grace doesn't just last for the few years that we live on this earth. And oh, that would be good enough, believe me. If you had God's grace for five minutes, that's good enough, right? Anything God gives is good enough. But you know what? God wants to give better than that. (laughs) God wants to be bountiful in his grace and his love. He assures us that if we follow the light of Christ, and we leave the darkness of sin, that we're going to draw from that living water, his wellspring of his presence forever. You know, one thing we seem to do as humans too, going back a little bit to history lessons, is we always try to build up these perfect cities, these perfect nations, these utopias. But we know that time and time again, we're going to fail. And because of what we saw, the way that sin oppresses us, the way it ruins our relationships, we can understand why that happens. Because there's enmity and strife and jealousy and anger and hatred between us. But now that we see this vision that Isaiah is having, we see into a perfect future, one where Christ, the light of the world, is reigning as king for an everlasting period of infinite justice and righteousness. Let's read verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth, this time forth, and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I actually want to go straight to another uh, biblical text because that is just Man, we could just do that all day. We could just sit up here and read scripture. That would be a wonderful, beautiful thing to do. Maybe one Sunday we can, Tanner. But uh, I want to turn to a a vision that the Apostle John receives in the book of Revelation. It's another vision of this eternal life. And I want us who have our hope in Christ to read this as being included in this vision. I want us to feel the joy of, that hope that we have, the reality that we have looking forward because we have our hope in Christ. So let's read from Revelation. God will dwell with us and we will be his people. And God himself will be with us as our God. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Paradise is an eternity of enjoying, worshiping, and praising the very real now tangibly visible, there's no more cloud or darkness. The being in the person of God himself. That is paradise. 
We experience a taste of it now. I, I don't want us leaving here thinking that, okay, so we have to suffer for 70 years or so. We have to suffer for a little while, and, and then we can have this hope in this future. No, no, let me tell you something right now. The way that God graces us with his blessings here and now is with his presence in his Holy Spirit. We see this in the very people who knew Christ, who after Christ left them, sent his Holy Spirit on them, went on to spread his word and his truth. You know what? These people, they didn't receive Lamborghinis and mansions and all of the wonderful toys that we might want to have now. You know what they got? You know what history tells us about the apostle Peter? That he was hung upside down on a Greek cross. That's what he had visibly and physically on this earth. But let me tell you something about what was going on in his spirit at that moment. And while he was probably being tortured beforehand, is even though the lashes hurt and he could feel the pain and the blisters, what was happening in his soul was a peace, a contentment, and a joy that no uh, emperor or king or movie star has ever had because they happen to have these great, wonderful gifts that the world wants to offer. Peter says, you can take those broken cisterns. You can keep them. I have the Holy Spirit. I have God's presence in my life. This is what we have now. This is the hope we have now. It's a reality. And for those of us who are following light, who are following Christ, you know this to be true. You might be walking through difficulties and troubles now, but you know it to be true. For those of us who might be searching and looking at who this person Christ is and, and what this means to draw in the presence of God, I pray that you look at that reality that you keep trying to satisfy those desires and they're, they're not satisfied. I pray that you come to God's word. All of us come to God's word because it's here that we have eternal truths. Listen to what Paul says once again about God's word. The power of God for salvation. God's word is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. In this account, in these words, is life. In the person of Christ, it's life. Do you want to experience life? You want to experience joy? You want to experience deep satisfaction for those longing desires of your heart? You turn to the light. You turn to Christ. Stop pursuing these broken cisterns. They are going to keep disappointing you. You will never be happy. You will continuously pursue them until the day you die. And then when you look back, you'll say, I have not found it. We have lasting satisfaction in Christ. We have this gift, this eternal, wonderful, joyous gift here and now. If there's anyone out there who needs prayer, or has questions, please come, come talk to myself or, or Tanner. Um, we have, talk to someone who, who man, just, it, listen, if you want to make yourself available, make yourself available. 
People need to, to feel this presence of God. And, and I just pray that we really do draw on these deep wellsprings and these eternal truths. So I want to leave us with one last passage that I would love to make our, our motto, or at least for today, maybe going into 2014, because it is so true. Psalm 37.4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you knowing that we have deep bonds of oppression that have gripped our soul or are gripping our souls. We come to you knowing that you are truly the deep, eternal wellspring of joy. And we pray, God, that you would move your Holy Spirit in our lives so that we can see the light clearly. And from the light, we can see you clearly, God. I pray that our hearts would long for you, that we would receive this wonderful blessing of your grace here and now, and that we would hope and know that the reality of our future perfect paradise is truly set. God, we love you. We know you love us. Be to us a very strong, mighty presence forever and ever. Amen.